While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. on this ice cube while you think about something to talk about oh that's great radio you should do that i didn't think we were doing the episode yet <laughs> welcome to overview this is a podcast about the books you've been reading to read my name is craig my name is andrew and craig has ice in his mouth oh ice mouth they'll call you what would your gangster name be like in the 1920s? Oh, oh, you mean like so not like what would your 90s rapper name be, but like what would your what would your prohibition era bootlegger name be? Yeah, because my 90s rapper name would be MC Getting. That's just my name. It's done. Right. But my 20s name would probably be Ice Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> People would hear the ice clinking against my teeth and they'd know that I'd come for them. And then Elliot Ness would come and arrest you and that would just be it. I guess I'd be like, maybe because I'm like tall and slender, they would call me some kind of like fat name. Like a They wouldn't just call you tall guy? No, they wouldn't call me like slim or whatever because you have to call a, a fat guy slim. Fat boy that's slim. How, that's how, that's how, well, no, we're not talking about... Now he's rapper days. Try and stay on top of it. <laughs> okay, you would be uh like Chubbs. <laughs> Chunky Drew. Jelly Jelly Belly. Jelly Nope. Um uh, I'm sticking with Chunky Drew. Beer bellied Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. This one's going pretty good, too. This I don't... one's going great. I think we're keeping this one. Andrew, each week, one of us talks about a book that we read. The we other sure person do. the other person listens and says things. Uh, what book did you read this week? I read Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Does that book have a subtitle? Oh, Blood, Blood Meridian or Evening Redness in the West. What? Okay. I guess that's like about sunset or maybe blood or something. I bet it's both. So, Cormac McCarthy, the author of Blood Meridian, obviously, The Road, No, no Country, Country for, for Old, Old Men, Men, right? All the Pretty Horses is another one. Uh, that one sounds others. nice. That one sounds better than this one. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Cormac McCarthy, and these are all the pretty horses I know. I think his name Look at was... their pretty mane and their pretty tails and their pretty horse eyes. I don't think that's what that book's about. But I haven't read it, but I I assume I think that's what it was about. I also think that Cormac was born Charles and then later changed his name to Cormac after the Irish king Cormac. That's all I know okay. about Cormac. Um another 
source says that Mac- McCarthy's family actually changed his name. But what are you going to do? Did they just want to do over like they didn't like how they did it the first time. So they tried again. Well, they named him after his dad, Charles. Mm-hmm. He, okay. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe maybe says, well, I'll name this one after me. Nah, he doesn't doesn't act enough like me. Let's change it. Or maybe they had another son later that they liked better and they oh, wanted no. to give that kid the child's name. <laughs> so you can just be Cormac. That sounds reasonable. Which is the name that you have to grow into. I think you have to be about 67 years old before yeah, Cormac sounds like a name that you should have. I want to know how young he was going by Cormac because that, yeah, you definitely have to be able to wield a gun to be named Cormac. Right. It's a real boy named Sue Conundrum that he's got. <laughs> I mean, you could call him Mac. You could call him Cor- Cor- Cormy. Cormy. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Cormy. Yeah. Cormy, Corm. So Cormy, Cormy is a Cormy is a novelist. What 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 else do you know about Cormy? Because you did this part of the research this time. Oh great. Well, I'll preface the little that I know with uh, the fact that McCarthy is one of those I'm a writer and you that's all you need to know kind of guys. Oh, okay. Uh, he like one of the few, if any reviews he gave uh to the new york i think it was the new york magazine book review he did in honor of his editor of 20 years who passed away and that wasn't until the 1990s uh his first television interview was in 2007 when oprah made the road part of her book club sure so i guess when oprah comes calling you perk up a little bit even I even guess, Cormac McCarthy man. is not immune to Oprah's charms. Yeah, so he was for for context, he was born in 1933. This particular book was written in 1985. And yes. so for his for his first televised interview to have happened in 2007 is he, he waited he waited for the right one. I think he made a good yeah. call. <laughs> you don't want to just go on whatever like Larry King, Jay Leno late night flash in the pan show. Uh-huh. That comes along. That's you want to wait for you want to wait for the biggest one, and I think that he did that. Maybe he saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and said, "I don't want any part of that," and wrote off TV for why, years. Why wouldn't he want any part of that? That was like a seminal performance. Well, seminal because it made him uncomfortable. I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Do you know any other facts about Cormac McCarthy? <laughs> Uh yeah, I know that he his first book, what is it called? I have it down here in my notes. It is called The Orchard Keeper. Okay. I have it. Sorry. He didn't uh write it until the early 60s and it got published at Random House because that's the only publisher he had heard of. <laughs> Um, his, his relationship to writing and reading, he kind of, he likes a couple of novelists, a lot, a couple turn of the century, uh, realist, except well, he likes Joyce, but that's different. Uh, he doesn't like, he is staunchly against magic realism, which is something we've talked about the show, like the Latin American writers. He, he said something about if it's hard enough getting someone to believe whatever it is you're writing them without it being impossible. Why would I? Why would I do that? Okay. 
Uh, so he like Moby Dick is his favorite book. How about that for reference? That's that's not surprising at all. Yeah, really, actually. <laughs> I and I think there are some connections to Blood Meridian that we might want to get to. But he never finished uh, college. He w- he went. He was attending the University of Tennessee in the early fifties. Uh, his parents had moved down there when his dad went to work for the Tennessee Valley Authority. I don't know if, like, that's a whole big part of American history. The whole New Deal is, like, a thing that I forget was as big of a deal as it was. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was sense? a big New Deal. It was a big, fat New Deal. And they should have called it the yeah. big, fat American <laughs> New Deal. And so just like, oh, you're living in Rhode Island. Oh, you're a lawyer. Oh, we need you in Tennessee to represent this government program. Go. That's the deal. That's the deal. Have fun. (laughs) So (laughs) I hope you like barbecue and music from Tennessee. Um, I don't know why I blanked on what kind of music. I don't know why I blanked on the name of an entire genre of music. (laughs) Yeah. All right fine it's, if, it's, if it's if it's not clear it's you know we're recording this a little late because craig is craig has just moved and he just got his his internet set up so we're recording this on tuesday night and it's pretty late and i feel like we either need to be like more awake or more intoxicated to do to like maintain the energy level that is typical of and, us on this show am, yeah i am walking a tightrope between those two things right now so. yeah <laughs> Uh, he married someone from uh, university, the university that he did not finish attending. Uh, his first wife, Lee Holloman, had his first son, Cullen, in 61. And then she divorced him not long after when he said he wanted to make his life as a writer. And she wanted him to get a day job. And he basically was like, no, thanks. And so she left for Wyoming. Uh, and that was that. He okay. He then published that first novel and then he got a bunch of grants this is like a whole nother part of the writing world that crops up especially with these mid 20th century writers where you publish a book and then you get a bunch of fellowships and grants and then you just start traveling the world uh does not sound like a bad deal no it sounds like a pretty good american new deal (laughs) and uh he was over today's deal is you is you self-publish a novel on amazon and it's about and velociraptors you, and having you sex. hope yeah. that it keeps you in ramen noodles and spaghettios for long enough that you can write your next one precisely yeah precisely uh so he was traveling in europe he met his second wife and delil uh who he would stay married to for almost 10 years if not a little bit more uh, had no children with her. Uh, she helped him type up a whole bunch of his novels. So, she in the interview I read from the early '90s, she you know was willing to speak on the record about him and seemed pretty congenial. Uh, I don't know if, if we'll talk about this with the book, but it, he kind of has a reputation for being like a writer's writer and a man's writer, Andrew. And, and women don't seem to focus too heavily in his work. They super do not. They at least su- not in this book. <laughs> okay. There are barely women in it at all. Okay. Uh, um, I'm trying to, and in fact, one of the one of the instances of of women appearing, like they just they come up on this on, and, and we're gonna the, the word the book uses for it because this takes place in like the eighteen like late 1840s and 1850. 
the book says Indians are Indians. We're, we're I'm gonna stick with that just because it's the it's it's what the book does. But you know that's that's obviously not the the word that you should use now because they they are not from India and they're not Indians. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Just decided they would be. But yeah, they come up on this this tribe of of Indian people and the women are like naked from the waist up. And many of them are lovely and many of them look like they have syphilis. And that's like the, that's what there are other women. Cool. There are other women in this book, but like, that's one of the, that's one of the examples that, that like the only one that sticks out to me. Cool. Okay. Uh, real quick. The only other kind of tidbits I could find any, any other biography I found of him was really just, here's the list of all the things that he wrote. Uh, and even the Cormac McCarthy society says, you know, except for a few odds and ends, uh, this is all we know about Cormac McCarthy. And we respect his author. We respect his clearly expressed desire for privacy. Uh, so if you're like really into Cormac McCarthy, you're also really into not learning any more about him, I guess, mm-hmm. because you respect that. <laughs> Uh, he did say that he quit drinking in the late seventies. Uh, and you know, a lot of the friends that he claims to have after that period are the ones who were also able to give it up. Yeah. You know, he, he's quoted as saying, if there's an occupational hazard to writing, it's drinking. Uh, and that's in kind of the Hemingway Faulkner era mold, I think. Yeah, sure. Uh, and some have said that a lot of the, the, the kind of self-loathing protagonists that he has put in his books uh, across, uh, along the line fit a model of, of someone who's kind of come through that whole experience. Yeah. Uh, and then one more thing is just his, none of his, and at the time that all the pretty horses was being published, none of his novels had sold more than 5,000 copies in hardcover. Uh, even though he was this kind of widely respected and that was, this was 20 years ago, but you know, he was still building up a reputation and I feel like he's a product of the pre-internet era in a way that a lot of the big writers out there now aren't, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. He was kind of popular in a in a university and literary circle culture that is of the 70s and 80s that doesn't seem to exist right now. You know, if a, if a big book comes out, it's French, it's front page news because some, not front page news because that's silly but it's <laughs> art, front arts page it's news. face facebook news it's, it's on your yeah. facebook news feed yeah it's facebook news because like oh man people are reading and they can all agree on one book for like a week like that's like a news story in and of itself uh and he seems to predate that era which is i find that interesting i don't know sure um I don't I don't have anything to substantiate it. I don't I don't have like quotes of his. He's also noted as being a conservative in a variety of ways and I think that's probably evidenced in some of his writing. Um especially its focus on kind of just earthier landscape and western mores and and whatnot. Um mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what his political leanings are and he certainly doesn't seem interested in expressing them to people, so I yeah, and that. I don't know that's something that this book gets into because it's so far removed from what we'd recognize as like a as a modern political landscape. So, um, but yeah, the, like uh, Blood Meridian, like again, written in 1985, was not really a, a critical darling or a commercial darling. 
when it was originally published, it was only later that it became that way. But, you know, in the, the modern reaction to it is that it's a great book and like Time Magazine put it in um, its 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005, which is a pretty big stretch of time that encompasses a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, obviously people like this one a lot. Ah, Okay. <laughs> Okay. My relationship with it is more complicated. Like, let me let me tell you a story about me and Cormac McCarthy. Is um, so in college I sort of fell out of reading. Like I read a lot. We've talked about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a lot as a kid and a teenager. Like read, read, read all the time. But in college, like I had to read so much for class that it just it was not something that I wanted to do with my free time, and so I just kind of stopped. Your free time, as I recall, involved Mystery Science Theater, mm-hmm. The Simpsons, mm-hmm. and pizza with black olives. That was mostly it. And also <laughs> all of Star Trek's Deep Space Nine Voyager. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Not so much. Other, not were, so much. There were, there the were other things. Yeah, there were other things, but but those were yeah those those were the bulk of the of the things. That's fair. So after college, I sort of slowly started to get back into reading again. Like not enough that I, like I didn't read enough that when you said let's start a podcast so we can read more, I was like, no, thank you. I think I read quite enough. I've got this on lockdown. <laughs> But it was it was like mostly nonfiction stuff, and so one of the first fiction books I tried to read in a while was *The Road*, which is another I think his most recent published book. And mm-hmm. I read like the the disjointed sentences and the the long flowy paragraphs, and I was just like, nope, nope, can't do this. Really? Okay. Not interested in this. I don't know. There was something about the the style that that turned me off and now, now that i've been doing the show for a while i i recognize that impulse in myself and i know okay if i stick it out through a couple chapters i'm just gonna get used to the voice and it's gonna get easier yes but, that's certainly something that has happened to me as a reader since the show i've i've uh, i've at once become hyper aware of certain things that are happening in books so that i can be prepared to talk about them on the show mm-hmm. but i I think I've also really, like you're saying, stretched that muscle and and gotten it in good shape where if a book is doing something I don't initially feel on board with, I can usually come around or at least kind of then maintain that, okay, so here's what's going on, distance, that's useful. And so so that writing style is is a big component of his work or i mean at least it was in the road and it is also in blood meridian so i assume it factors into all of his books yeah even the one where he's talking about horses that he thinks are pretty let's just that's totally what that book's about let's just keep maintaining i'm just gonna keep creating this fiction where it's just cormac mccarthy writing like lisa frank fan fiction (laughs) let's release a series of children's books that all have the titles of Cormac McCarthy novels but are about entirely different things. Yeah. Like The Road is just it's about a kid who goes to the ice cream store. And and Blood Meridian is about a kid who kills everybody. No, you messed it up. You messed but in up like a goof. cute but like in a cute way, like in a pop-up book. <laughs> 
And it'd be one of those ones where you pull a little tab and he like stabs, he scalps the Indian. Is it a as scratch and tab. sniff book too? Um, I don't think that would be very pleasant, but there are certainly lots of smells that you could smell <laughs> in this universe. So let's, uh, that, that writing style is something that you definitely have to be on board with to write this, to, to read this book. And it's, it's interesting because it's simultaneously like very florid and descriptive, but also very like spare and simple, if that makes sense. Yeah. As I remember from reading the road, it's, he strips away a lot of extra punctuation. Like there's. You know, there's no quotation marks. He right. cuts no out a lot of... No quotation marks around speech. No, uh, or very few apostrophes. He hates um, semicolons. He said that he said as much in interviews. Uh, so yeah. he doesn't use them. So what you end up with are um, very long paragraphs and occasionally very long sentences. Like, you don't get into, like, Faulkner-esque, like, ch- things where the whole chapter is one sentence or whatever it is. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, he does, you do he, sometimes get these long, unbroken strings of text that you just kind of have to, to to wade through. Yeah, it does seem to be this kind of marriage of Hemingway-esque, I don't really care if you know who's talking right now, <laughs> yeah. and Faulkner's love of just wall of text and, you know, as you're inside of a character's thought process. Yeah, yeah, like McCarthy, not only does he not care if you know who is talking, but he doesn't care if you recognize that somebody is talking at all. <laughs> uh, before I let you keep going, I do want to point out, I forgot to mention, his the guy who discovered him, basically, who got Orchard Keeper published and was his editor for 20 years, was uh, also... Faulkner's editor so mm-hmm. there was kind of a there's a continuity there that sure makes more sense. than just what we're talking about you know kind of flippantly on the show so yeah I have I have a good I have one big example I highlighted of his writing style that I will get into after I do a little bit of plot stuff so um the the protagonist to the extent that there is one mm-hmm. because there's not really anybody who you can cheer for in this book like okay I don't know. Like he's he's still a pretty bad person, but he's this he's a sixteen year old kid who ran away from home and he Love him already. Of, yes. Let's go. Let's go, of, kid. And like right off the bat the book says, Oh, this this kid has a propensity toward violence. <laughs> like before he was even a grown up, he he had a lot of potential for violence. And so he kind of stumbles his way across the American West for a while. Um, he gets into some bar fights. He witnesses early on this scene where there's this preacher in this tent and a judge comes up and says, this preacher raped a girl and he had sex with a goat and he's a bad guy. Even though that was not true. That's like the preacher hadn't done that stuff. Like the, the judge gets up and just did that stuff to make the assembled crowd really mad. <laughs> what? Okay, it's it's yeah. the The first part of this book is all these like sort of barely related scenes that kind of establish the the kid, and, and he is only known as the kid. Um, they establish his personality and his propensity toward violence, and also his his like knack for violence. Like, not only does he want to to break liquor bottles over bartenders' heads, but he's also pretty good at it. Okay. So he does this until he hooks up with these um, sort of vigilante-ish or like militia-ish people who who live in Texas and are big into Manifest Destiny and say, okay, we're going to go into Mexico 
and we're just going to conquer a bunch of it for the U.S. because that's like that's what's going to happen. That's what. And that's this what is pre Civil War. This is 1948, 49, 50. Do you so, mean 1848? Yes. Or yeah, yeah, eight, yeah, yeah, 18. Okay. Um, so yeah, a, a few years previous to the Civil War. Or a couple so decades, of right? so instead, yeah, instead of the the modern, let's go to Mexico and get wasted. Their idea of a good time is let's go to Mexico and conquer it. Right, yeah, it's like not let's let's go to Cancun and and drink a bunch of coronas and and have a bunch of sex and whatever. It's let's go to Cancun <laughs> and they shall know us by the trail of dead that we leave behind us. That sounds terrible. Okay, cool. <laughs> so they're right down there. They're you know, they're, he's in this party and, and and all of a sudden a bunch of a bunch of Indians come upon them. And basically kill them all because they are not like very well equipped or very good at fighting. So that's I feel like that's quintessentially American is to be really bellicose, but to also be really bad at it when it actually comes down to it. Okay. Um, and so this is this is where I want that's where I highlighted a big example of how McCarthy writes, especially when there is a lot of action happening. So he's writing about the the Indians descending on this party um, a legion of horribles hundreds in number half naked or clad in costumes attic or biblical or wardrobed out of a fevered dream with the skins of animals and silk finery and pieces of uniform still track with the blood of prior owners coats of slain dragoons frogged and braided cavalry jackets one in a stovepipe hat and one with an umbrella and one in white stockings and a bloodstained wedding veil and some in headgear of crane feathers or rawhide helmets that bore the horns of bull or buffalo and one in a pigeon-tailed coat worn backwards and otherwise naked and one in the armor of a spanish conquistador the breastplate and pauldrons deeply dented with old blows of mace or saber done in another country by men whose very bones were dust and many with their braids spliced up with the hair of other beasts until they trailed upon the ground and their horses ears and tails work with bits of brightly colored cloth and one whose horse's whole head was painted crimson red and all the horsemen's faces gaudy and grotesque with daubings like a company of mounted clowns death hilarious all howling in a barbarous tongue and riding down upon them like a horde from a hell more horrible yet than the brimstone land of christian reckoning screeching and yammering and clothed in smoke like those vaporous beings in regions beyond right knowing where the eye wanders and the lip jerks and drools that's one sentence whoa <laughs> whoa so okay. you can see like it's it's none of those words are super challenging really but it's it's still very descriptive like yeah. it feels it feels very straightforward but also very florid i guess well yeah cuz he's you know drawing the images of those uh of those the the marauders from the tribe are like fascinating yeah it's really i mean that's really specific stuff that he's that he's coming up with yeah um okay yeah i mean there's a, there's a sense of description to it that is and then this thing and then this thing, and then this thing, mm-hmm. and he doesn't need to tell you like he doesn't need to link them with causal phrases or anything because he's just yeah, told you even, that they're just running at you, you know. Yeah, yeah. There, and there's even, I mean, a lot of this is even comma free. Like it's one big sentence, but there aren't even. Re- I mean, there are a few commas here and there, but but he's just like jumping from one thing to the next, and you've got to keep up because like, is he still describing the the 
previous thing or has he moved on to the next thing? And it's, it's yeah. Like I wasn't on board with it initially, but there is, I mean, there is something here that's, that's engaging and intriguing, you know? Yeah. There's an intense poetry to it. It's not just at that. The second you remove the conventions of prose that aggressively, you are fighting against kind of just the base uh, rhythms of prose and making people extra aware of what's going on. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the whole point of breaking grammatical rules in general, right? Is to... Grammatical. Supri- gra- what? Grammatical. That's not a thing. Yeah, I mean, you're. I think you're breaking grammatical rules yourself by inventing that word, but you please go on. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> the whole point of doing that is to call the reader's attention to it, right? So mm-hmm. it is. It's when when they're when a writer is doing that for sustained periods of time. That's that's a that's a whole other thing. But sure, you build in space where he can get away with that. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, so let's let's jump through the rest of the plot and the major like themes and things before we before we move on. Um, so most wait, of did the you party... just mean like before we move on, let's do the rest of the podcast? That's kind of what you just <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's the part where we're talking about what happens in the book, and then there's the part where we're like goofing on on whatever, and then there's the part where we talk about how it makes us feel. So, <laughs> all right, cool. Peel uh, back the curtain. This is the show. This is this is a deal. Um, please excuse the mess. <laughs> okay. So obviously the the uh, American party does not fare super well against this uh, no this I, marauding I band. Think not. Um, the kid survives, stumbles across the desert for a little while longer, and gets arrested. Um, but then is. He he's he met this this guy named Toadvine, which is a which is a neat name. <laughs> earlier in been, his adventures, yeah. and and he ends up imprisoned alongside Toadvine, and Toadvine sort of tricks their way out of prison by saying that they're really accomplished scalp hunters, and maybe we can join the scalp hunting party that you're trying to establish. Okay. So they they take up with this scalp hunting crew known as the glanton gang and this is a real like this is a real gang with historical precedents there's a guy john joel glanton who um was a texan fighting for independence he um fought in the mexican-american war and then you know later he got into this stuff so this this town this town <laughs> hires really into scalping yeah this town uh. hires him and his party to go out and scalp a bunch of a bunch of Indians because, you know, because they're killing white people and we can't have that. Um, mm-hmm. So they go and, and they're being given money, you know, per scalp. So they go out and they do this and they're pretty good at it. And they and, you know, at, at first they're they're killing people who are are obviously violent. Bad and people, then, maybe. Bad, well, I mean, like, quote-unquote bad people. Like, who knows? I mean, they they probably... I mean, just knowing the history of our our country and this particular group of people, like, probably they were pretty justified in wanting to kill everybody, but whatever. Okay. Um, and then they start just killing people in villages, 
and they set upon this camp of like a thousand people and they just burn it to the ground and kill everybody. And they, they become more and more indiscriminate about who they're, who they're killing as the story goes on. And the, the bulk of the book, like the whole middle chunk of it is just this gang roving the countryside and killing everybody. And Do like they going meet with obstacles? insane. I mean, like not really at first because they're just so good at killing people. Um, they, so like it's it's the the book goes way out of its way to tell you how like depraved they are and how wild they are. So like the, at first they bring back these scalps to the town and they are hailed as conquering heroes, and then they like at a party in their honor they get a little nuts and start fighting. And then they just turn the entire town into a nonstop party and like wreck the local economy and all the shops close and everybody's terrified of them. And they are eventually declared outlaws because they are bad dudes. And also they are just killing everybody without regard for whether they're armed or whether they belong to the group of people who were trying to kill or, you know, whatever. So they went full animal house on this town. And basically, is that how that movie ends? Does does yeah does Belushi just like kill everybody? It ends with him standing on a pile of bodies covered in blood, with that college shirt on. <laughs> I never, I never saw Animal House too. It doesn't sound like my cup of tea. I don't. I mean, I think that's probably why it's not as popular as the first one. Yeah. That's it's uh it's a weird film. Scor Scorsese's first. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, he's in this this group of people who are really bad and they kill everybody. And I've got to say, like this is the crux of my problem with this book is that the I mean he describes these horrible horrible acts of violence. Like there's a guy who takes a couple like he takes a baby in each hand by the leg and he swings them both down on a rock and he like breaks their faces. Whoa. Like they're, they're literally swinging babies around and killing babies, but it goes on and on and on and on for so long that you just, you get, I don't even know if you get desensitized to it, but you just get bored by it because that like, it's, it's not being done for any specific purpose or like, there's no, thematic stuff like for for a long stretch of this book in the middle it just feels like they are stumbling from thing to thing and killing people and if someone literally looks at them sideways in a bar like they'd start a fight and they burn the entire town down like it's it's it's, there are only so many times you can read that before you're like okay what is like when does this book get started when when do we get to the point (laughs) are there like other characters are there cool dudes there are Are other characters and so that's where we get to the point such as it is is remember the judge that i mentioned earlier who seemed like a bad dude yeah that the goat guy yeah he that his name is judge holden um he's also ostensibly a real figure though we don't really know much about him like the, the our primary source for most of this stuff is um a guy named sorry i need to Samuel Chamberlain. It sounds like um, a name. Yeah, he had a he had a book called My Confession and it's the it's um 
autobiographical and it's one of the main sources for this period. This character, Judge Holden, appears really briefly in that account as a member of the Sclanton gang, like a particularly bloodthirsty member of the Sclanton gang. Okay. In the in Blood Meridian, he is sort of the primary antagonist. Again, such as such as it is, because this is I mean, they are all running around and killing people. So like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, I guess but so. He's he's this figure who I mean, he see the way he's described is it makes him seem a little superhuman almost, like he's completely hairless. He's just a huge guy, like really big, and he doesn't seem to like age over the years. How did he get and to be he, a judge? Is he like the I d- there's a there's a, a section in the book where they're asking him what he's a where they ask what he's a judge of and the people just kind of laugh like he's just the judge. I'm so glad we opened this episode with gangster names because we've got like what was that guy's name Toe Wipe what was his name Toad Fine oh. Toe Wipe <laughs> we got Toe Wipe and the judge and Chunky Drew. This is a pretty good gang we've got going on. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty good. We're regular regular scalp hunters over here. No, we're not. <laughs> um What was I talking about? So So what does we, the judge do? What's his deal? He, Why his he... deal is he he waxes philosophical a bunch of times in this book. And these are these are the most engaging passages is one occasionally they take a break from just murdering everybody uh-huh. to talk about to talk about literally anything else okay so Such he as? his philosophy is that like war is the point of mankind like that's what we're here for and mm-hmm. it's it's a part of us and is what we're all like working toward or running toward okay I've got a few few quotes that I can read because they're they're kind of peppered throughout the throughout the novel. Um, it makes no difference what men think of war, said the judge. War endures as well. Ask men what they think of stone. War was always here before man was. War waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be. That way and not some other way. What about okay? War is your trade. Is he's he's talking with somebody else? Not that you could tell because there are no quotation marks and no indication <laughs> that two people are speaking. War, war is your trade, is it not? And it ain't yours, mine too, very much so. What about all them notebooks and bones and stuff? All other trades are contained in that of war. Is that why war endures? No, it endures because young men love it and old men love it in them. Those that fought, those that did not. Um, and then later, scene so, war is the truest form of divination, is the testing of one's will and the will of another within that larger will, which because it binds them, is therefore forced to select. War is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. Moral law is an invention of mankind for the disenfranchisement of the powerful in favor of the weak. Historical law subverts it at every turn. A moral view can never be proven right or wrong by any ultimate test. A man falling dead in a duel is not thought thereby to be proven in error as to his views. It goes on like this. Like you can imagine why why people think this is a great American novel because it's it's got stuff like this in it, I guess. Well, do you not I mean, it seems outlandish to a point, right? Do you is he per 
Like, it's not just espousing that mentality, even though the book is clearly, like, the plot is reveling in it. Is the book reveling in it? Are you meant to revel in it? I don't think you're meant to revel in it. It's just, like, it's surrounded by so many examples that prove it right that that that's how you kind of start to think about it. And so to, to... like why the kid is the protagonist and why the judge is the antagonist is at one point the kid is supposed to kill this guy and he lets him go instead of killing him. And it kind of makes the judge upset later on. And like, so so we're supposed, we, the kid has moral fiber because there's like one person that he doesn't kill. Yeah. That seems about right. I don't, I don't know. This is, this is a, so you just was it was too much? It's it's I don't even know if it was that it was too much. I mean, it did get boring in the middle. And like you would just jump from this kind of thoughtless violence to these people having these philosophical conversations. Like there's one other passage where the judge says that if something exists without his knowledge of it, then it is, it exists without his consent. Mm -hmm. Like he's a really, he's a weird guy. He's a weird dude. Yeah, I would think so. Um, and I guess the, the book ends, I mean, I don't know if we want to spoil it or, or whatever. I'm just, I'm just kind of, floundering at this point in the it's a, oceans it's a modern of, of classic prose. if people are concerned they can pause the episode and go read the book and come back <laughs> so he i mean the the kid after many like okay so the glanton gang eventually meets a bad end they take over this ferry and start killing everybody who tries to use it and stealing all their stuff and then the local indian tribe who originally asked them to help with the ferry situation like there was somebody there who was charging like a dollar a head to um to move people over it and they get with the glanton gang and they're like how about we take this ferry for ourselves and we just use it and whatever the glanton gang of course takes over the ferry and starts charging four dollars a head and then eventually just starts robbing people without pretense (laughs) oh okay so that that uh that indian tribe gets upset and kills glanton and a bunch of the gang members, and that is the end of the Glanton gang. <laughs> the kid and the, the judge kid? and a couple others get away from this, and the kid and the judge like come to come to blows. They have a couple of conversations about the nature of mankind, I guess, and then the kid kind of gets away, and three decades later, the man, as he is now called in the book, Meets up with the judge in this bar. The judge does not appear to have aged. They talk a little bit more about the nature of mankind. And then it is very strongly implied, but not shown, that the judge kills the man in an outhouse. Huh. And there there's some um, critical reactions to it that that find it really interesting. And I guess in retrospect, I do too. That this book, <laughs> this book is like wall-to-wall violence uh-huh. all depicted in these very graphic terms mm-hmm. like that like you're stringing up dead babies by their feet mm-hmm. in trees like it's cool whatever 
like it doesn't show you so, so you don't know that the that the kid gets killed it doesn't show you what the judge does it just the kid or the man i guess goes into the outhouse and the judge is sitting in there naked which sounds weird but the judge is naked so many other times in the book that you just kind of get the idea that he likes being naked just naked judge that's that's that guy's name naked judge and then and then later some people look into the outhouse and are like stunned by what they see but they don't tell you what it is yeah and you don't think it's sexual so either i mean it could be sexual it could be both um there there are a lot of people who do think it's a sexual thing so yeah either either the kid got killed in there or somebody had burritos for dinner and it didn't agree with them (laughs) I can only think of so many reasons why you would look into an outhouse and say, oh, my God. <laughs> I haven't been to like an outdoor concert in a long time. Like a like a firefly or a like a what's that one down set? What's uh, what's it called? Bonnaroo Warped, warped Tour. <laughs> Not Warped Tour. <laughs> that might as well be run by the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. I don't even know what that's about. <laughs> But like Bonnaroo or South by Southwest, I imagine those outhouses are just like. No, I I imagine that 98% of the people who go to one of those leave with some kind of bacterial infection. Gross. (laughs) Cool. Let's talk about the book, I guess. I guess I'm done with the book. Like, that's the deal is everybody, everybody sucks and gets dead. But. Why? Why does he write the book? Why do people care about the book? Do people care about it because it vindicates their own lust for violence? Because it confirms... I, it's a lot of work to say violence is bad. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even... Th- and I don't even think violence is bad is what it's saying. Like, the main point that it espouses is that war is God. <laughs> I think... That, but that seems over the top. I feel like that's... I don't know. I, I um... maybe maybe it is, and I I don't know that McCarthy is like earnestly espousing that that like view of the world, but I think people like it, or like it, it's become a great American novel or whatever. One because of prose passages like the one I read, like the first big one. Yeah, of course. Where it's just written in a really striking way, and then. Two, it does have these things to say about humanity and war and like morality. Like the thing about, you know, you can't you can't prove who's morally right in an argument. But if you have a duel and one guy kills another guy, like that's pretty decisive. <laughs> okay. It's, All right. It's it's a black and white view of the view of the world, I guess, and it's I mean, black and white views of the world are very appealing in That's a lot fair. of ways. That's fair. Yeah, like when you get rid of the gray areas, it becomes a lot easier to to get stuff done and to to believe that you're in the right about something. You know. Yeah, he he said that when we were talking earlier about which writers he does and does not like, he ruled out like Henry James and Proust or Proust or whatever. I think Proust. Proust, it's fine, like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they weren't dealing with, you know, literal life and death issues. You know, mm-hmm. I think McCarthy leans into 
a primal version of the world, like what you've been saying. And maybe it is because he'd rather it be blacker and whiter. Or he views it as blacker and whiter than people, than other people view it, if mm. that makes sense. I, I know yeah. in, he's quoted somewhere and he's like, there's no, you know, nothing has happened without bloodshed or something like that. There's, you know, there's no humankind without bloodshed or something. I believe that that, that may be in this book. Okay. There's so many little passages where they just kind of talk about that kind of stuff that I don't remember if that's in this book or if I read that somewhere else and I'm just like yeah, projecting it onto this book. book because it seems yeah. like it would fit. <laughs> I guess well, one question, I know we're, we're kind of running out of time, but the portrayal of Native Americans, Indians, as the book calls them, it seems there was something I read on the mccarthy society website that kind of made me feel weird so i want to okay. see if i can find it and if Hit me. Uh, it says mccarthy dismantles the politically correct myth of aboriginal victimization so that victims and their antagonists become indistinguishable uh the it then references the earlier passage that you read mm-hmm. and so i mean do you know what I mean when it Does makes it me feel icky? Dismantle like the, is the, he saying that because Native Americans ever killed other people that oh they're not just the poor victims that they are in like modern times? Is that what the what they're driving at? That's what I am taking and I'm I'm trying to read deeper into it, but at the very least I am seeing someone advocate you know, someone who's seeing in McCarthy's work kind of a leveler playing field that perhaps appeals to them they a more are, universal playing field they like th- this book takes a very like a distinctly unenlightened view <laughs> okay toward anybody who isn't a white people like like so there there's one passage where they're talking about mexicans and one character asks if somebody like they're trying to establish the identity of some guy whose head they cut off. Like they were looking for a specific person and they don't know if this person is that person. And and one of them says, you know, he, he was fully like he was all Mexican. And another one says, you know, there's no such thing. You might as well say that a dog is all mongrel. Oh, like those are those are the terms that are used to describe race in this book. I don't know that he's leveling the playing field like at best. He is drawing on an outdated tradition where the best of Native Americans can be like noble savages and the worst of them are all whooping in war paint and coming for your scalp. Hmm. That's what I get from this book. Like, I don't. Uh, well, I, I'm just wondering. I really don't. I yeah. D- yeah, that makes me feel icky too. I don't. I don't. Because that that quote sort of implies like a, oh, gotcha. You guys aren't the you guys aren't the the suffering victims that you that you say you are. This the, Cormac McCarthy got you again. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to give McCarthy as much credit as possible. Because yeah, right. And I don't. I don't like the way you said it i don't know if that viewpoint is coming from him or from some reviewer or what like the fact that it's on his website implies endorsement i think well it's coming from the society's website which 
he being Cormac McCarthy does not seem to have his own, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, yeah. Or at least one that is not publicly run by him. Anyway. It's on the it's on the dark web. Yeah. <laughs> he is, okay. McCarthy multiple times in his life built his own house, and he's like a he's a huge proponent of like stone laying as a trade. He once said that it's the oldest trade. I thought about that when you were talking about like war being and murder being the oldest trade. Um, because he likes that you just build things for yourself, like man. So he built his own internet. I that's what I think. I think he built his Cormac own. Cormac McCarthy internet. has an amazing like web 4.0 website on his own internet, <laughs> and none of us can see it, and no one can see it. Uh, like his, if you look at the HTML that Cormac McCarthy writes, like it'll just blow your mind. Like the entire website. The entire website is just enclosed in one set of brackets, and there's not even like a closed bracket. Like he doesn't need one. Your browser just knows that he's done talking. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I'm. I would have to to. I don't know. I would want to read it myself to to even to see if I could. I hear you. That what is there on the page is sounds gross at times. Yeah, I mean, some there, of it, some of it purposeful, right? I mean, his other books. There's there's at least a book of his that has a necrophiliac in it. There's mm-hmm. another one where a girl tries to go find her like child of incest, and then it gets killed. Like he is not a writer for the faint of heart, and the road is no easy book either. Once you like get past even just the quotation marks yeah and yeah yeah i mean like 30 minutes or however long we dedicated to this book is not enough to dive into the depths of the depravity of its subject matter and every one of its characters like it's very strongly implied that the judge had sex with 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 people who who he shouldn't be having sex with like kids maybe he keeps a uh uh it's described as an imbecile so you know a mentally disabled person as a kind of pet mm-hmm. at one point mm-hmm. it's just it's a lot of people a lot of bad people doing bad stuff <laughs> all right if you are a bad person <laughs> Uh, you can stop listening now, I guess. If you're a cool person, you can tell us what you think about Blood Meridian or Cormac McCarthy. Uh, you can write that in to overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Joe, who wrote in to in response to our Outlander episode. Uh, Joe said, guys, I love your show. I listen to it when I'm driving, but I've also started listening to it at the gym. And when Craig did the Scottish Muppet thing, it made me laugh so hard I almost dropped a weight on myself. Joe, I'm glad that you're okay. I'm, I'm glad that you're that okay too, but you should know that I our legal not. team says that we are not liable in any way for any injuries that you may sustain while listening to our podcasts. Yes, that's correct. That's We also that have a legal team. Law fact from me <laughs> to you. <laughs> Uh, I also want to give a quick thanks to everybody who reached out on social media this week. You can do that at twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. That includes Amanda, John, Kara, Tysophines, Sean, Rachel, Jane, Ducky McKenzie, Alex, Patrick, Jillian, 
Uh, everyone on Facebook was really nice about the whole me not having internet thing uh, and shared a bunch of book recommendations for waiting. Uh, that includes Ray, Joe, Stephanie, Leslie, Rob, Nina, Eric, Danielle, Albie, Ricky, Kara, Jocko, and Alana. Andrew, if they, who are still hopefully listening right now, had anything else about the show that they wanted to learn about, where would they go? Uh, they could go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. On the on the regular internet, we are not on McCarthyNet yet, but we are working on it. <laughs> um, up there, you can find links to the books that we have read, the ones that we are going to read. You can also find links to our iTunes, Stitcher, and RSS feeds. If you subscribe in iTunes especially, leave us a rating or review because that helps us in the rankings and it makes us feel good about ourselves. We um, are up at like 118 ratings right now, which is pretty good. Um, It's pretty good. I don't think I can say let's go for 200 yet. Like, obviously, let's go for 200, but that's going to be a a marathon and not a sprint. So just keep keep on on building that up for us. Um, We've also got a link to our Patreon. Patreon is a site that lets people like you pay money to people like us for creating the thing that we create. So you can make a monthly pledge of like $1, $3, $5, however much that you have and you want to dedicate to us. And we use that to buy books, to buy equipment, um, to advertise the show. We're, we're, we're kind of working on a couple things there right now. Um, and if you pay at the $5 tier, you can get a book on your list knocked up to the top of our list. And there are a few people who have who have donated in the last couple of weeks that we have not contacted yet. I think we're just about at the end of our list of of uh, patron suggestions. So I'm I'm going to be reaching out to all of you to try and uh, drum up the ones that we haven't solicited yet. Um, yeah, if, if, if you want to support the show, that's probably the best way to do it. And, um, if you have stuff, especially, I feel weird about our conversation about this book specifically because there's just like so much of it. And I feel like I didn't quite grasp like what the great American novelness of it was. So So if you're a huge Blood Meridian fan, I want to know what you think and we can, we can read it on the show as we do sometimes when people have strong reactions to the stuff that we say. Um, Craig, you are reading the book next week. What is it that you are reading? I'm reading Across a Hundred Mountains by Raina Grande. Uh, Raina Grande is a former PEN, like P-E-N, Emerging Voices Fellow. Uh, and I think this book, I feel like it won some awards. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's uh, you know, set on both sides of the Mexican border uh, in the 20th century. So kind of an interesting follow-up. I guess not in a like literal thematic tie, but just kind of we're staying in a similar region of geographic of, area. Yeah. Similar geographic area dealing with vastly different issues. And uh, it's an interesting book. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm going to hold out hope that there is less scalping. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I, I think that's correct. Okay, great. Um, everybody, we will see you next week, hopefully on time. Thank you for bearing with us in our in our delayed posting of this week's show. That's not going to be a regular thing. Um, we will be back next Monday, and until then, try to be happy.